Right, hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Hosting as always, my name's Dan, and I'm joined this evening by Paul. Good evening, Dan. And Calm. Good evening. Gentlemen, how are we? Are we both good? Yeah, I can't complain, Dan. Well, you can, but we might not be discussing the specifics of the Arsenal game in terms of the result. <laughs> um, I, I don't think we can start anywhere else other than a conversation we actually had last week um, with regards to head injuries in football. Um, Raul Jimenez, um, unfortunately, fractured skull, and you could tell straight away that was a very serious injury just by the noise. And yeah. Yeah, it, it it looks. I mean, I wasn't watching it live, Dan. I think I've I've complained here that the NFL, uh, the the Premier League, keeps scheduling Arsenal at the same time as my NFL teams playing. To be honest, with the results we're getting at the moment, it might be a blessing that, <laughs> <laughs> that they keep clashing with other things. So I'm I'm not watching them live, but I have seen a clip on online today, and it it, it looks immediately as though you know you do something seriously wrong. And obviously, everyone hopes Raul Jimenez uh, recovers as quickly as possible. I think they've said it's a fractured skull and he's had surgery, haven't they? Yes, that's correct. Um, I think I think the other thing it brought into focus, Dan, was was uh, whether Arsenal should have left Luiz on the pitch, which I think they did to half time, didn't they? The the incident happened after about fifteen minutes, and I think he played the rest of the first half. Uh, with a, the old Terry Butcher bandage. Um, he, he did, yes. And th- th- this is what I wanted to bring up because, I mean, I'm already, what, two or three minutes into the podcast going to nominate um, Troy Deeney as my prannick of the week because he has come out and said that footballers should be allowed to decide whether they're um, injured or enough or not to come off. David Louise didn't thought his name was cheese on toast. He didn't yeah. have a clue where he was or what he was doing and... You know, um, it, it's not a decision that he should be making. That should be something that's dispassionate. That should be a doctor saying, you know, "Like this guy's got to, got to come off. He's not, he's not with it." And he wasn't. I mean, from personal experience, I, I have been very briefly knocked out playing rugby, and as is, as as you do as a sports sportsman, not that I would indicate that I'm any kind of sportsman at all. Um, I got up didn't realise quite what had happened and just got on with the game. Now, if I was a professional, this was that was in 2004-ish, even then, no one would have hooked me off. They would have just said, no, like, just get on with it. Whereas now, in rugby league, at least, there are protocols. You go off for a head injury assessment. You've got 10 minutes to, to come round a little bit and, and demonstrate that you've not lost any kind mm. of faculties. And if you don't pass that test, you ain't coming back out. It's as simple as that. You've lost a substitution, but you have... 10 minutes if that person is then deemed fit to continue they can resume their place on the field as and when and it will just cost you a substitution um do you think that it's time for something similar in football or is it a case of just get him off the field and substitute him and deal with it later well i mean as i say i wasn't watching it live but i think um I did flick uh, half time of the, of the NFL game I was watching. I did flick on and caught the sort of last five minutes, I think, of the first half. And even then, which is what twenty minutes, thirty minutes after the incident, um, Lewis looked, uh, let's say, groggy. There was a point where he had the ball at the back, and he just looked slightly, you know, slow and lethargic on it. Now, some people might say, "Well, that's just David <laughs> Lewis," but, um, but but you know, I, I think. I think Arsenal were wrong to leave him on the pitch, to be honest. I think he should have been taken off immediately. Um, 
I know we do have procedures now where the, the club doctor has to do a, a concussion test and, and take a view as to whether the person, the player is, is fit to continue. Um, and obviously I, I, I have no reason to believe that that wasn't, wasn't done in good faith and in the proper manner. Uh, I know in the NFL they have um, an independent doctor at every game and that independent doctor watches back every single play on a video. Um, and obviously, it's much more prevalent in the NFL because many more of the plays involve sort of head-to-head collision. Uh, but he can pull a player out of the game at any time um, just because he doesn't like the way something looks. And I wonder if, uh, you know, in terms of a, of a head collision, and, and I wonder if we need to get to that point. I, I think I think Arsenal have to bear a bit of responsibility for putting him back on the pitch. don't think that was smart. Um, and yeah, David Luiz may say he's fine to continue, but as you say, Dan, it, it shouldn't be in the players' hands. This is about their immediate health. And as I say, we all hope Raul Jimenez is fine and we all hope David Luiz doesn't have any ill effects in the next few days. Um, but going back to the conversation we had last week about head injuries in later life for footballers and and memory loss and dementia and the causes, you know, the the, the effects that it can have... Um, I think Arsenal should have taken a more sensible decision for the players' long-term future as well and, and pulled him off the pitch immediately. I, I mean, the, all, the, all the evidence suggests if you've had a concussion and you have another one in, in short order, then it can be very, very serious. It, Arsenal may, may say, well, he wasn't concussed, but imagine a situation where Lewis has already had a pretty significant bang on the head and then he challenges for another ball before half-time while he's still on the field and gets another significant bang on the head. I, it just wasn't smart. He should have been taken off the field. Um, and I think football's got to do a better job, uh, especially because, again, as we've talked about, these conversations about the long-term effects to footballers of heading and everything that comes with heading, not just the connection with the ball, but the times when actually what you connect with is another person's head. These conversations are not going anywhere. So um, time, I think, that we had a bit of a better process for dealing with those things. Uh, well, I think pretty pretty comprehensively covered by Paul there. I mean, I, I wasn't... Uh... I didn't see too much of the game yesterday either, so I knew there'd been an injury. I hadn't really quite realised the severity of it, in all honesty. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's madness to suggest that you know a player should be um, you know able to just make the decision for themselves. I think clearly in in this day and age now, with you know we need to be taking the, the you know the, the medical opinions um, over just what a what a, a player thinks um, and and you know the shout for having someone more independent of the club's coaching staff because you know i don't know if uh for example will the arsenal club doctor be held to any sort of account i don't know but i imagine if you're on the staff of a club and you have to answer to the manager um depending on who that manager is that might influence your decision as to you know whether to keep someone on or not so mm. the, the independent angle is, is a very interesting one um obviously we need to look at how practical that is at the levels of the game and where that comes from and who the right people are and and you know who, how that's funded and so on and people would probably have to agree to it and knowing FIFA that'll probably take about 35 years but <laughs> <laughs> how realistic it is I don't know but it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting point that, a very uh, cynical yeah, count <laughs> well you know it, me it, it's a good point about the independence as well Con, and the, and the and the way that you know I'm sure all club doctors are are acting you know within the spirit of, of uh, and the uh, ethics of their profession in the way that they um, deal with situations on the touchline. But we don't have to go back too many years 
to a member of Chelsea's medical staff being screamed at by the Chelsea manager in full view in a case mm. that ended up in the in an employment tribunal. So yeah. we don't have to go back that long to see how that sort of, you know, the the, the sort of um, the respected medical element of the job can clash with the yeah, but you work for a football club element of the job, um, and, and that's yeah. why I think some independence would help. Well, part part of the re- it's funny you mentioned that example. Part of the reason I was thinking is you know recently in involving that same manager in the Spurs documentary. Now I know it's all edited and so on, so you don't always get the full context. But there were a few scenes in there involving sort of players needing treatment, and um, you know when Spurs had all those injuries around Jan Feb time. Um, I presume it must have been from then. And there were a few conversations that sounded and looked a bit uncomfortable, where doctors were having to justify why he couldn't pick a player, um, and. You know, you don't know. That's obviously one documentary, one club. Um, but you don't know. I'm sure there are, must be many, many similar conversations that happen, you know, up and down the country, particularly probably at the moment with so many injuries happening, um, where, you know, I, I imagine there is a, deg- a degree of sort of split loyalties between, you know, sort of professional uh, yeah. obligations and, and who pays my wages um, and maybe a degree of independence, particularly on, you know, really severe things with, with head injuries that, you know, like I say, can have both short and longer term impacts as well do need to be taken seriously and it does seem to be something that football has consistently struggled with you know getting to grips with um and you sort of wonder what's it going to take for it to do that you know you don't want it to be something really really bad um that has to force its hand you'd you'd hope that the people that govern the game could could take a more intelligent look at it but then then you look at the people that govern the game and you realize (laughs) (laughs) well there you go (laughs) if uh, just, just uh, if you're unsure, by the way, for, for those of you at home about which manager we're talking about, put it this way: it's a, a, a balance between getting someone fit and getting Alexis Merton on the pitch as slowly as possible. <laughs> um, that that reference will go over the head of anyone who, who can't remember 2005, Dan. If we've got any younger listeners, uh, Alexis Merton, Thiago, uh, Nemanja Matic. I'm sure we can go on and on and on about that kind of midfielder. Um, it, this is kind of like related to the point we've just made, but fitness and injuries and general workload of players. Now, I'm obviously going to leap to Jurgen Klopp's defence, but I thought that his... It, it will be labelled, of, of course, as, as Klopp's rant or Kloppo's cracking up or, or whatever nonsense people will come up with. I think for... His his kind of discussion with Des Kelly, and it turned into a discussion in the end. It wasn't an interview. It was a, it was first of all a bit. I mean, first of all, Jurgen Klopp was actually quite rude to Des Kelly. I thought, but as the conversation went on, it was kind of turned into a debate. And of course, as you would expect, Des Kelly went into bat for BT, and he clearly armed himself to have this conversation with Jurgen Klopp, and he will have that conversation with Jurgen Klopp again in I think two weeks when we play Crystal Palace on a Saturday morning. Um, after a Champions League game in in uh, it's not in Denmark actually it's been moved to um, to Dortmund for for whatever reason I'm not too sure. Um, now we're playing too much football. We all know that. We've been saying that for a while. We've had the back and forth about five substitutions. Very interesting debate. I think that'll be on the table again. I think Jurgen Klopp spoke five percent frustration after a, it certainly felt like, felt like there was going to be a VAR check to make sure that we'd won the the, the, the coin toss. Um, on Saturday, it was just that kind of game. Five percent of it was frustration, which is what you get when you speak to a manager who's just conceded a 
farcical, yeah, last minute goal. farcical 90th minute penalty. You've got um, 5% anger at the situation and then 90% complete sense because um, there is too much football. The way that teams who are competing in Europe are scheduled for early games is unfair. Um, I'm not so sure that Jürgen morning on national TV about it is going to actually change anything, but he's going into bat for what he believes and Chris Wilder has kind of come in making pretty inflammatory statements. So he, he's got it back off, off Klopp on, on Saturday. I don't think you've heard the last of that. I think that'll come up again. Um, I think the three points, sorry, the three subs, one point line was a bit naughty, but accurate. And where, where do we go with scheduling? Because something needs to change. Well, I think it's it's particularly this 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 lunch, you know Saturday lunchtime slot, isn't it? That's really causing the 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 issue for the it's the Wednesday night sort of Saturday lunchtime that's that's the big conflict. And and Solskjaer made the same point about uh, about United after we played Everton because um, we've been away to Istanbul Wednesday night, and you know his point was you know you get back sort of essentially Thursday morning and you've got a day and some change to sort of to get get yourselves you know dusted down and, and ready and it's you know it's just hardly any time to prepare at all particularly you know if, if one or both games happens to be an away game as well and you add the travel in um it's maybe not so bad if both games happen to be home but it's unlikely they're going to be um and you know it does seem as though it, it is sort of broadcasters sort of acting in their own interest but then they are separate companies so they're, they're kind of going to do that i suppose is is part of the problem and i think that's kind of some of the discussion was was centered around that um and i think there's a yeah it's a bit of an interesting one is who who needs to sort of give, give way to make this right i'm not i'm not entirely sure um i think there's you know definitely a lot of sense to what what klopp has said i know he's got perhaps more and more frustrated by it um, I wonder if I know, and I know Liverpool are particularly injury hit. I do wonder if, you know, some of the frustration is also perhaps just around, you know, that results maybe in some cases aren't going as um, as well as he'd like as well. Because I know in both those games probably didn't come out with the, you know, a, 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 what was it, a, lo- a loss and a draw. Probably not the, you know, the ideal turnaround um, for those games. So, and I know it's all interlinked because arguably the performance, of the results is linked to the plays available and so on. So I, I get the point he's making. Um, I, yeah, I, it, it did. <laughs> there were elements of a, of a rant um, in the speech, but equally, I do have sympathy for him because um, you know all the clubs are affected as well. It isn't you know, and he's made the point. It's not just about Liverpool, um, and I think he's he is using the platform he's got. You know, whether you know Des Kelly isn't going to change anything himself, and he made that he made that point quite clear to him. But equally, you know, uh, his 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 platform is speaking to the football media, so that that's what he was doing, and that that's his way of of getting it across. Whether anyone's listening, we'll we'll have to see. So so yeah, I think um, so. I do think he was he was quite rude initially to Des Kelly, and as Colin said, Des Kelly's not. You know, yes, okay, it's BT Sports problem, but it's not Des Kelly's problem. Oh. Des Kelly's not deciding which games to to pick for um for TV. That's that's not his job. It's way above Des Kelly's pay grade, frankly. Um, I, I think you know uh, there was some frustration, definitely, from the end of the game. Um, some frustration, I think, from the fact that Liverpool probably felt they had some decisions in that game not going their favour, which doesn't help. Um. I think overall, the Chris Wilder point, and I made this 
point when we had the debate with five subs, Jurgen Klopp has to represent the interests of Liverpool Football Club. And that's what he does and that's what he says and that's why he argues the way he argues. But Chris Wilder has to protect the interests of Sheffield United Football Club. And it is not in the interests of Sheffield United, who at the moment can't get a win from anywhere, to go into games against the top teams in the league where the, the game might come down to your 15th and 16th best player. Because the gap between Liverpool's 11th best player and Sheffield United's 11th best player is big enough. The gap between Liverpool's 16th best player and Sheffield United's 16th best player is astronomical. And the, and the, the, the difficulty that makes for competitive balance in a league like the Premier League, Chris Wilder has to make the arguments that he makes for his club. And I know there are 16 clubs in the Premier League who voted for it, or 15 clubs who voted for it, but it doesn't matter. The, the, you know, the voting structure of the league is something we touched on when the, you know, the proposal was done earlier in the year where only eight or nine clubs get a vote. That's not how the Premier League operates. It's one club. One vote, Chris Wilder has to represent the interests of Sheffield United and vote in that course. The same way that Jurgen Klopp has to represent the interests of Liverpool. Um, but, the, 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 but there is things that we can do here, I think, that don't go that far, that, that are just common sense. And that is, if an English club has played away in the Champions League on Wednesday night, let's not schedule them to play Saturday early kickoff. I mean, it's as simple as that. Just say that, that can't happen. If they've played at home on a Wednesday night in the Champions League, they're available to BT to pick for um, the Saturday morning games. But if they've played, um, if they've played away from home in the Champions League on Wednesday night, they are not available to that time slot. Now, if BT still really want a game, let's say they still really want to show Brighton versus Liverpool, it's the game BT couldn't possibly be without, <laughs> then, then the game has to move and it has to be played uh, later in the day and, and Sky have the Saturday morning slot for once. I, I do think there, are, there is flexibility within the framework that we have to just make the situation a little bit better. Um, and Khan's right to say it's not just uh, Liverpool that have been affected. United definitely were. I think I mentioned that to you guys that week of the Everton game. It seemed a ridiculous short turnaround. Um, equally, I think um, the numbers actually say Tottenham have been really badly affected as well. They play the Thursday night and then are often the early Sunday game. Um, Spurs seem to have been the early game on Sunday quite a few times this year. So, again, that turnaround is it's the same in terms of time period. And, and I think we should just be having a conversation that says, look, if, if you are away from home on a, on a Wednesday night or a Thursday night in Europe, you cannot play either on the Saturday or Sunday as you would be scheduled. You cannot play before 3 p.m. Um, and I know it's only three hours difference, and people might say, well, what, what difference does that make? Huge difference. But, but in terms of the player's recovery, it, it, it does make a difference. Um, you know, and, and there's so much sports science that, that backs that up now. And, and Stu, when we've had him on, has touched on it previously. I, I, I just think it, it, that would not be um, too big of a, of a concession to make for clubs. Um, I'm all for trying to make concessions that help the clubs that are in Europe where possible, as long as it's not at the expense of the rest of the league. And I think the five substitutes thing, as I've explained before, in my view, goes too far um, against in terms of disadvantaging others. But I think the scheduling can easily be solved without disadvantaging any, uh, 
you know, without being disadvantageous to any other clubs. And so that's something we've definitely got to look at. Um, uh, and then completely as a neutral, uh, Chris Wilder and Jurgen Klopp's sort of public spat is, is quite funny to watch. I don't think we've heard the last of it just yet. Um, no, I don't either. I think, I think it's going to go on and on. I think what makes it funnier, Dan, as well, is it's top of the league against bottom of the league. I think there's something that, that kind of adds to it, of the fact that it's kind of, the, you know, the, probably the best team in England at the moment against maybe the weakest team in the Premier League. Um, I, I but think it's definitely amusing as a neutral. The two the two things um, that I want to come up with, are both about Klopp. Number one, the reason that he's so upset with Wilder is because... A lot of people will call Jurgen Klopp a lot of things, but to call him selfish when he, he genuinely—obviously, he's representing Liverpool Football Club—but as a quite recent ex-professional himself, he cares about player welfare, and I, I think that that is what is grated on him that we're running these players into the floor. I, I, and of course, the, he wants more substitutions because he wants to, to have a more of a rest for his better players. Will it have a massive impact on um, injuries? I don't know. I think the schedule is more of a problem, personally, than not having more substitutions. Certainly, no no one's talked about the water break. It's gone missing from the summer. Um, I will mm. I will say that. But the um, the other thing about about Klopp is is, is complaints. It's not so much the kick off time. It's the tr- it's the lack of training that we have because yeah. I, I I'm not sure about the ins and outs of this, but I, I know that Liverpool train. You know, have have the big training session at the kickoff time of the next match, so mm. we will have you know, like we'll have had that the, the session for the Brighton game at half twelve the day before, and then we have to then travel down to Brighton and then and whatnot. That that's where um, where Klopp's concern lies with with the lack of turnaround time. I mean, yeah, but a three three o'clock kickoff would be a huge difference, or a half five. Kick off, huge difference. Mm. I think that's right, Dan. I, I, and I think you've hit on something there as well, which is the critical point. Uh, even the scheduling and the substitutions and the water breaks and any of those other things you want to throw in there in the mix about how we try and get this right, they're all to an extent fiddling around the edges. The fundamental problem that we still are left with, I think, is we play too many games of football. And I don't know how, you know. I don't see any sort of real desire from anybody to tackle that. And I think, I don't think it's in anyone's interests in football to tackle it, even the players. Because while Jurgen Klopp is right to worry about player welfare, if you reduce the size of the Premier League from 20 to 18, which is something I've long advocated, um, I, I think you, you know you could still have a competitive balance with 18. Um, if you do that, the broadcasters aren't going to pay you the same money sure. for less product. So, so that affects the money coming into the game, which indirectly, ultimately, affects the the what you might say is ridiculous salary inflation that we've seen in recent years. So, it, it's in no one's interest. Players don't want to take less money for playing less football. Um, Broadcasters don't want to pay less money for less football. They're quite happy to pay more money for more football because nothing sells advertising space like football. Um, so I just, you know, I, I I think all these things really are about us trying to make the best of what is a bad job and we're not going to be able to really fix the fundamental problem. 
Um, you know, we've talked on this podcast before about whether we could do something with the League Cup. I know I'll let people <laughs> insert their own joke into what we might do with it. But um, but fundamentally, there's just too many games. Yeah, complete, completely agree. Com- completely agree. Um, well, just just a quick one. Part of Paul's solution, I was thinking, wouldn't have actually helped this with a slightly mischievous point, but it wouldn't have actually helped Liverpool because you were at home on the Wednesday. Yes, no, no, no yeah, I did mean to bring that up, actually, yeah. Um, Paul's <laughs> suggestion is... That's true, they were. Liverpool were at home on, on Wednesday and played half of a B team against Atalanta. Well, this is it. One, one thing I, I must say, actually, is that we now have a very important game against Ajax on Wednesday. We, we, we don't have to win because we're away to, to Magitiland last game. So we do have another life if we lose. It's incredible we're talking about this, having won our first three games at a canter in the Champions League. Play your strongest team against Atalanta. Try to beat them and then you know, like play the Brighton game and have the next two midweeks off. But no, we've done it the long way around. So I'm actually mm. quite I'm actually quite frustrated about that to be honest. I mean, Jurgen Bengi used to plays. do that all the time. I, mean, I remember being at a game a few, um, you know, probably in the last three or four years of Wenger's reign. We played Olympiacos at home in I think our first home game in the group, put out the stiffs and got beat three two, and then had to play our first team the rest of the group trying to catch up the ground we'd lost. And you're like, <laughs> if we just played the first team against Atalanta, they could all be sitting at home with their feet up now. That's, um, that's uh, sorry against Olympiacos. I, I, I think it is a trap managers fall into. Yeah, and it's not one that you can often accuse Jurgen of, but um, he decided to go easy against Atalanta, and now we're going to have to. I mean, we we had to rest Joel Matip on Saturday in a game that is arguably more important to play this game this week because we've cocked it up. So that that's really frustrating. So yeah, some of it is on Klopp too, but I think ninety percent of it was talking sense, five percent was nonsense, and five percent of it was going to war with Des Kelly and as I said that 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 battle will resume again in a few weeks when we are the early kickoff and uh, I'm not so sure if Des Kelly's looking forward to that one in particular Paul um, on this very podcast at the start of the season you said that Sheffield United are going to struggle and I disagree with you um, I was wrong not for the first time you were right um, now if, if Chris Wilder wants to call Jurgen Klopp selfish, I think that might be because we managed to extricate £25 million from Ian Brewster, um, who has not yet um, hit the heights that I thought he might might do so. Um, they're in a relegation fight, there's, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, they're in big trouble, Sheffield United. I don't see where they're going to win enough games to stay up, really don't. Um, it's a shame... Uh, I still think Burnley as well. I know they had a, a result the other day, but I still think Burnley. Um, they don't score goals. No, I, I think ultimately those the Premier. What's happened in the and we've talked about this before in the non-fan era of the Premier League, <laughs> as I'm now referring to it, um, is the games have opened up and there's more goals being scored on average. It's much harder, I think, for those teams who were traditionally don't give much away, make it tense, you know, bring the crowd into the game. Uh, and then sort of really play off that atmosphere and, and try and nick one nils and, and two ones and whatever. Um, which, again, it's, it's those clubs with less resources and certainly Burnley have got the smallest wage bill in the league or, or, or if not the smallest, the second smallest. And Sheffield United are probably the other team right down there with them on that. So it's harder for those teams, but I, I do think the um, I think they're both in for a real struggle. Uh, well, there's not there's not much more to, to say. I think um, 
yeah, I think we've talked about the teams, you know, down the bottom end a few times now um, this season and, you know, consistently around Burnley and Sheffield United, you know, both really struggled to get off the mark. And like I said, I know Burnley have picked up the odd results and obviously had, took a bit of a battering this weekend. Um, but Sheffield United, you know, stuck on a solitary point after after 10 games is a pretty grim state of affairs. The The, the only mild crumb of comfort they might have is if if they can rally you know it's they're not fully out of out of reach yet you know um they're sort of what five six points off uh theoretically um getting you know climbing into safety but it's it's yeah going to be a big uphill struggle um and, and the thing is as well you know with Sheffield United they, their style you know was you know different to say a Burnley you know they weren't purely a sort of safety first sort of team necessarily I didn't think so it's, but yeah, maybe it's the fact that they've put a lot of pressure on, you know, a very young, inexperienced striker to sort of lead the line in the Premier League. Uh, maybe it was a bit of a big jump too soon for him. Um, I know he was getting hyped up at Liverpool, you know, the lad Brewster and um, playing for the England youth setup as well, I think. Um, but yeah, maybe there was a bit of a reality check needed sometimes for these clubs before they go and spend money on a player that perhaps hasn't developed quite right. You know, maybe a, a loan to the Championship for a year might have been a better move for him than you know, jumping straight to a to a Premier League uh, team and, and expecting to leave the line. Um, but there you go. So, yeah, I'm not sure if it's something that they'll be able to address or not. Um, but, you know, equally, I, I don't think it's necessarily a, you know, we spoke about, you know, Chris Wilder before. I, you know, he's done an amazing job there. It's not like he hasn't become a bad manager, you know, um, and it's largely the same group of players. So at, at this point, it might be more, can they sort of psychologically turn it round or are they already starting to think, you know, we're down, which given you we're not yet in December, I don't think, is that would be a, a grim state of affairs because it's going to be a long old rest of the season for them. Um, if they can't, if they can't turn it around, the thing with Brewster, and you, you might both remember me saying this actually, is I just thought twenty-five million pounds for someone who's never scored a Premier League goal. I mean, not had many appearances, granted, or many sniffs of appearances. That that would be what would be attracting my eye. You know, like Liverpool player, the young players, and like, why is this guy not not played very often? It's because I don't think he's ready. Yeah, so I mean, he did have a, a successful spell in the championship the second half of last yeah, season, he did. didn't he, at Swansea? Um, but I, I and I wonder a little bit, and and this is not saying that Chris Wilder knew in the summer they were in for a struggle, but I, I wonder a little bit if the if the buying Brewster isn't with one eye. Look, if the worst happens, we were probably able to keep him, and he is somebody who will get us the goals to be right in the mix to come straight back up. Um, I, I'm sure that wasn't kind of the the main talking point but I think when you similar to what you've seen at the moment with with um, Solanke playing a lot of games at Bournemouth is when you go and buy a foreign striker sometimes for 25 million if they aren't good enough to keep you up when you get relegated they're, they're on the phone to their agent saying get me out of here as fast as you can um, when you buy a young British player who's not made it at one of the big clubs Going down to the championship can sometimes be seen by that player as his opportunity to to really show what he's made of and to bounce back to the Premier League. So I, I wonder a little bit if there was a bit of that in the decision to sign Brewster, that, OK, worst comes to the worst. We know he can score in the championship. He might just fire us straight back up and we might come back stronger. Um, I, I don't know, but, but it's, I, I'm loath to write him off as a player, but he does look a little bit out of his depth at the moment. And, uh, not helped by the fact he's playing in a team that are not creating many chances. 
Um, maybe he should have a chat with uh, Aubameyang because he's he's definitely suffering the same fate. Well, he seems to have down too since he signed a new contract. To be honest. Well, I I think a lot of a lot of people are questioning Aubameyang's attitude. I I mean I haven't seen the game yesterday yet. I don't, to be honest. I just think he's frustrated. He they ain't getting him the ball. Why, like, you know, strikers need the ball. I mean, we can't get the ball to him. Uh, but that's probably because we play with 11 in our own half most of the time. Yeah. Because Granite Xhaka can only pass backwards. It must be in his contract. <laughs> and, of course, uh, Wolves are a very good football team. Yeah, Wolves are really good. I mean, you know, uh, they're better than us at the moment. So so that's what it comes down to. Um, one One question I've got for you both is... You know my kind of approach to the knockout cups is not as um, strong as it once was. Um, now, the FA Cup is not in any point in any way, shape or form like the Carabao pointless fizzy pop cup. But um, I think that with the way that the fixture scheduling has been going, I think that the, um, the FA Cup magic might be in short supply this year. But with that being said, um, I believe Marine have just drawn Tottenham in the FA Cup which is a superb draw for them. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's great. It's great for um, for Marine. I think, you know, surely the ones who, who go into the draw, don't they? I think I think they, they've drawn Derby, I've heard. They have, yes. um, so yeah. So I, I think, again, we talked about um, we talked about Morecambe a few weeks back, and I said it reminds me of the days watching my old man play in the old Northern Premier League in the days before there was a conference north. Uh, and Morecambe were always one of the strong clubs at that level. So were so were Marine. In fact, I think ninety two, ninety three. I've read today was the last time Marine made the third round proper, um, and I'm pretty sure that was a season them, them and Leek were, were neck and neck for the the title in the Northern Prem. Um, they were a really strong side. Have always have always been a, a well run club at that level. They're a few levels lower now because I think they're in again the sort of Northern Prem Division One. West, I think, is is where they currently play their football. But great day for them, and that'll be fantastic playing Spurs. Um, surely we're also in that Northern Premier League back in the early to mid nineties, but they weren't even any good in the in the Northern Premier League back then. They were a they were a kind of you know bottom half of that of that league club. Um, but again, they you know fantastic for them to get to this stage. And 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 Derby, okay, it's not a Premier League club, but but Derby's a club that have won the, the English Football League it's you know it's a club of good history and it'll be a great day for Chorley so it's it's good to see a couple of non-league teams you know getting to that level of the competition uh, it, you know they're always important days and um, for the players at that level I think especially uh, I think Marine haven't played since they won in the last round because they're too low down the pyramid for them to qualify for the covid exemption yes that's right. so um you know maybe they've had quite a lot of time to prepare for it but uh but on the flip side it's still a fantastic result and huge congratulations to everyone connected with it yeah one one, one question i have around, around this is obviously one of the things uh that's sort of good about the fa cup um is that it you know not only does it give the the fans uh, opportunities to either go to some of the bigger clubs or, or obviously have them come to their, their ground, which I'm guessing in the vast majority of cases, uh, that's not going to to happen uh, this season, which is obviously a bit of a shame um, for, for particularly some of the, the teams Paul mentioned. But I also just wondered, is there an angle around 
you know, sometimes that, you know, the, the share of the gate receipts is obviously um, more evenly distributed and, and can help out a lot of those smaller teams. Is is any consideration being given? I don't know how that's being worked out or if anything is even being worked out. But, you know, there are potentially some clubs who on any other year might have got a bit of a payday from their draw. Uh, and I'm, if there's no gates, I guess there's no gate receipts. But I don't know if that's something that's been been sort of discussed or looked at at all or if that's being managed in any way just to, i don't know if you guys have got any more knowledge on that one um, no I, d- I don't know if it's covered by this sort of payout that the premier mm. league still sort of negotiating with the rest of football but it's a really good point con that you know if there's no fans in the stadiums for, for chorley and marine um and and i i imagine chorley will be able to host that at their own ground I'm not 100% Marines ground. It's a long, long time since I've been. They might not even be in the same place. But Marines ground back in the day wasn't the best. And I'd wonder whether that would really be considered capable. But I know the FA these days don't like games being moved. So if, if you if you work on the premise that wherever it's played, there's not going to be supporters. They are big, big paydays that those clubs are missing out on. As it stands, um, sorry to just interject, Paul, as it stands, um, Marine could have 2,000 fans if the stadium holds that many. I'm not too sure. Because, right, OK. Because of the like, Liverpool the Liverpool region um, is tier two, effectively. But, 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 but they won't be able to have 2,000 fans, will they? Because they have to be able to hold however many fans in a way that's safely socially distanced. And if the capacity at Marine is 2,000, there's no way they'd be able to safely socially distance 2,000, if that that's, makes sense. That's true, yeah. No, I, I uh, so, that, yeah. But, 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 but you're right. If they can have some fans in the stands, A, for the, just the experience and the occasion, but B, to try and you know uh, bring some money into the coffers, that'd be, that'd be advisable for everybody. Um, I don't know how it's working out, but yeah, it's definitely a, a chance to, lower clubs will miss coupled with there's no chance of a replay because we've done away with replays so in in the old days as it were in the fa cup if you were i can't remember who, who was it rushton and diamonds maybe when they were non-league who drew with newcastle stevenage stevenage it was stevenage drew with newcastle and got a replay at st james's and you get two bites of the cherry of massive paydays it happened with burton as well and man U, i think exeter as well we united you know so 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 these they are huge events for those clubs i mean burton have said i think that the drawing man united in the in the cup uh expedited their rise through the leagues because of the the sort of one-off lump sum that they got from it I think a lot of these games as well. I mean, the the romance of um, of Marine against Tottenham will certainly attract. Um, is it is it the BBC? I know, I know it's definitely BT. I think it's the BBC who've got the rights at the moment, isn't it? Uh, you know, like, uh, yeah, it's it's BT and it's BT and the BBC, isn't yeah, it? I like, think. The, like the it's going to attract them. I'm not too sure that the, the, the idea of Wayne Rooney being stood on the sidelines is romantic, but um, the, the Charlie game will probably, again, appeal to the, the, the romance of the cup. But, uh, and it's it's difficult to see the, the cup being as attractive a proposition for the bigger teams this year just because of the sheer volume of games. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, I, I really hope we get to, I mean, as, as off the top of my head, I think Charlie's in, in Tier 3, I think Lancashire's in Tier 3. Um, and I'm not even sure if Charlie's considered Lancashire, it might be greater Manchester, but the point still stands, it's still Tier 3. Um, I think I think it's Lancashire, but, 
Yeah, it's a good point. It's the, uh, so uh, as it stands, there's not going to be any fans in their game, which is a shame, a real shame. Um, yeah, I, I would love to see both games on on the TV, but I mean Liverpool have drawn Villa, which just makes me think of the 2015 semi-final at Wembley when we had uh, we were losing an in injury time and instead of putting the ball in the box, Dejan Lovren blazed over from 35 yards, and uh, I've never forgiven him for that. Never forgiven Aston Villa for that game, to be honest. That was a horrendous, horrific experience, of course. Um, that was when Arsenal cursed them in the final. Um, was that 2015, Paul? I think it was. I think it was, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the final that was was 1-0 at half-time and, and we stood there in the Arsenal end saying to one another, we should be 4-0 up here. We're going to pay for this. There's no way it can be this easy again in the second half. <laughs> and we were right because Villa made it even easier. <laughs> Um, sad times for us to talk about as well we've had not one but two deaths um, obviously we we lost Diego Maradona earlier in the week and we lost Papa Boo Boo Diop yesterday um, just wanted to see if you I mean Mar- Maradona was not, not on my radar as one of my favourite players a great player undoubtedly he was my, my personal favourite ever player is uh, Zinedine Zidane now Maradona's obviously from the generation before that if not two generations before that but um, you, you see the videos and you know what war of football. Yeah, it was an incredible talent. I mean, my memory of him as a, as a player is is probably limited to the the game against was it Greece in '94, and the and the goal celebration where he screamed into the camera uh, in the in the World Cup in in the USA. Um, uh, so, you know, I didn't see him at anywhere near his peak of his powers. I've seen some of the videos from the 1990 World Cup, which was, you know, just a bit a bit early for me. Um, and he was an incredible player. Uh, the, the stories are that in 86, Argentina were maybe the worst team to ever win the World Cup. But Maradona, um, he, he dragged... Uh, Argentina both in 86 and 90 I think to to the final of the competition and obviously won one and um was a was a real superstar he also is a complete legend in in Argentina his um his personality his uh notoriety what he brought to the country I think um just made him an absolute superhero uh, we all remember as well his stint as Argentina coach, which was maybe a little less successful, but equally entertaining at times. Um, and I think, you know, he, he will be missed. He uh, he is one of the greatest players to ever play the game. He's definitely one of the biggest personalities to ever play the game. Um, and I think, you know, in 100 years' time, whatever the equivalent is of a podcast... Uh, but the, in a hundred years' time, when football fans talk about the greatest players ever, I think Diego Maradona will still be in that conversation, um, and that's as, as probably as special a legacy as, as anyone could leave. Yeah, very very well said. Um, yeah, definitely one of one of the absolute greats, and like you say, he had the the personality to go with it. It definitely falls in that flawed genius category, and there was no small irony when he. he the anniversary was actually died on the anniversary of George Best's death. Um, weirdly, funny how life works out or death works out, depending on how you look at it. But uh, that was just a little little oddity um, that I uh, noticed. But uh, yeah, very very sad news. And you know, obviously, you know, taken at a probably quite a relatively young age. But then obviously, his, his lifestyle was was well documented. 
Um, so perhaps isn't a huge shock in, in that sense. Uh, but the, the one thing I also wanted to sort of talk about really, and, and I think the thing that really part of the reason why, as well as that World Cup win that he is sort of talked about as one of the greats, is, is what he did at Napoli um, is unprecedented and unlikely to ever be really matched because you just don't get the best player in the world going to a nobody side and staying with them for six years and dragging them to two titles. You know, it just doesn't, it didn't really happen before. And it's definitely not going to happen in the modern game, but uh, it is, you know, you sort of joke about it, but it it is like a peak years, Messi rocking up at Stoke and and winning the league, you know, winning and winning two Premier Leagues with nobody, but it really is like, that's the thing. Napoli were, were, were nobodies. They, they just survived relegation at the point of him uh, joining, you know, it was, and he was moving from Barcelona. I mean, how many players have ever even moved from Barcelona to Napoli? You know, it just, at, at, you know, at the sort of, as they're going into the peak years of their career, I mean, it, it just doesn't happen. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure the mafia in Stoke would have been able to <laughs> up enough money to get him to the bridge. Possibly not. No. Um, uh, you know that's that's the other place where he's also a legend, and I, I believe they now named the stadium after him. Um, you know, yeah. just sort of mark his death as a you know as a mark of respect, and he will always be uh, you know always be sort of loved in in that region because they were the you know the, the northern clubs in you know there's a big north south divide in in Italy, and it's reflected in football um, that the north's rich and the south's poor, and everyone hates Napoli. That's just the one thing that everyone seems united in, um, and uh, you know so for them to sort of you know, beat the, you know, the Inters and the Juves, you know, these kind of big, rich, um, you know, teams, you know, was, was sort of unprecedented really. And, uh, you know, to, and to, to not just do it once, but do it, do it twice in three years or whatever um, is, is or four years. I think it was, is, is, was un- unheard of. And I think, uh, you know, while, whilst he might not have the number of medals of a, of a, of a Messi or Ronaldo, obviously you'll always have that world cup, but I think people don't, you know, people don't just judge players on, you know, they judge players on memories um, as much as uh, as medals. And I think Maradona definitely gave people the memories. And as, as you say, in 100 years time, assuming we're all here uh, and we haven't been coveted to, to obliteration um, and there are discussions happening about football. Yeah, I don't see it. I don't see a conversation where he isn't he isn't still being talked about. And that's that's sort of as much a testament, I guess, as you can give to anyone. It's the old it's the old Phil Neville won more Premier League than Eric Cantona. Yeah, but, 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 yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's the point. It, it is about the memories and it's about the moments that people provide. And, you know, and it wasn't just two leagues. It, it wasn't just two Serie A titles. They won the Coppa Italia, I think, as part of a double, if I'm not mistaken. They won the UEFA Cup as well. It, it really was the kind of golden age of, of Napoli football in many ways. And, and you know, he was definitely the instigator of that. So it, it's a fitting tribute, I think, that the stadium... Um, it's going to be named after him. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, uh, a, a loss that I think probably isn't a huge surprise. I think people knew he was ill and, and everyone knows his lifestyles. <laughs> He's not lived like a choir boy. <laughs> and I think that's, as Khan alluded to, that's part of why people love him. He uh, Part of his charm. It, it, I think the two things that Maradona has when people bring this conversation up and you compare him to someone like Messi is he, he has a personality. Messi's a brilliant footballer, but he isn't half boring. Um, Unless he's and, in the Barcelona boardroom. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Or uh, fiddling his tax returns, allegedly. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, you know, so uh, there's that. And there's also the element that, yeah, but 
Messi did it with the great players at Barcelona and, and Diego Maradona went and won things with Napoli. And, it, you know, those two things, they, they play up to that kind of man of the people image that Maradona had. And it also demonstrates how silly an argument medals is sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. Eric Cantona won less Champions Leagues than Jimmy Traore. You know, as, as you, you know, it's, or you got a best camp. You, know, you, you could go. You could go on all day. And I mean, you could go through that Liverpool side from two thousand and five, really. And other than Steven Gerrard and maybe one or two others, uh, that that argument applies equally to most of them. Yeah, there, there was a handful of good players. You know, there, there was a couple of of good players, but I'm not so sure that Milan Barros is going to finish ahead of Eric Cantona in many best player polls, is he? No. Um. And and just just to touch on on Diop as well, I always thought he was a, a really good midfielder, good good Premier League midfielder, very good at arriving late in the box. Yeah, I mean that was a shock yesterday, and I don't know if there's been more information that I've maybe missed today about about you know what what the cause was, but he was a really good player. I mean, when he first arrived at Fulham, it was the summer that Arsenal had sold Vieira, um, and uh, so that summer of two thousand and five. And there was a lot of, at the end of his first year of Fulham, there was a lot of people saying, well, Arsenal should just go and buy Diop. He's kind of uh, tailor-made to, to do Vieira's job. And he was a similar type of box-to-box central midfield player, big, energetic, powerful, um, probably scored more goals than, than Vieira, maybe wasn't quite as good defensively, but, but had that same sort of box-to-box energy that, and presence and, you know, ability to tackle and pass. And, um, and he had a good, a good career in England and uh, I think was, was pretty, pretty well-liked by the fans of all the clubs he played for. Certainly, I know, at, at Fulham and, and Portsmouth. And I think he had a spell at West, West Ham, didn't he, as well, at one point. He did. Uh, and, you know, I think all the fans of the clubs he played for um, will be sorry to hear that news yesterday. And... Uh, yeah, just, uh, I mean, you say Maradona was taken too young. I think, you know, 42 is, is really no age, is it, for a, a fit professional athlete like that? And, um, yeah, really sad news. Yeah, very very sad. Um, you, just, you just mentioned the spell at West Ham. Well, West Ham are 1-0 up against Villa already with the first attack of the game, header from a corner. Um, not, it, it certainly sparked the game into life a little bit because I was expecting this to be 0-0, to be completely honest. Um, any other business? One thing I want to mention: a, a team we've mentioned on this podcast before would be Celtic. Um, Two 0 loss at home to Ross County yesterday, and uh, you you think that Neil Lennon's really living on borrowed time now? Yeah, the end is uh, nigh. I think for for Neil Lennon, um, they they don't uh, they seem to have just lost all their confidence. They really do. It seems that the confidence just seems to have drained out of Celtic. And they've gone from looking looking as good as ever, really, at the start of the season, or certainly as good as they were last year, to looking like a shadow of the team that, that won the league. Let's not forget, Lennon was in charge from start to finish last year, and they won the league pretty comfortably. Um, and, and they've just, yeah, a couple of results just seem to have really uh, knocked the confidence. There's a lot of talk about whether the, the boy up front who, who got a lot of goals last year had his head turned in the summer. Edouard, um, and I think the, you know, he was linked with Arsenal, he was linked with a couple of clubs in France. Um, the, there seems to be speculation that maybe he isn't quite uh, putting in the effort he was previously, and, and that, that's that's had an impact. But I also wonder a little bit if there's 
bit of a freshen up needed at Celtic. Um, this squad of players, for the most part, has, has been together through the kind of Rogers era and then and then into Neil Lennon, uh, second time round. I, I I just wonder where they go. I mean, you know, do they appoint from within the Scottish game? That's not generally been the way that uh, Rangers and Celtic have gone in recent years. Um, if not, where do they go from outside? Mark Hughes. Uh, I'm not Mark Hughes. Well, I, I, you know, if anybody is thinking about appointing Mark Hughes, I know they ended up losing the game yesterday, but if anyone is thinking of appointing Mark Hughes, go and watch Southampton play this season and remind yourself that he had James Ward-Prowse training with the kids because he didn't think he was good enough to get in the team. <laughs> so if you, before anyone appoints Mark Hughes, just, just keep that in, in your mind. Um, anyway, there we are. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's a question as to who the obvious kind of candidate is, and that might help. The reason Lennon got the job when Rogers left in the first place was because the kind of wasn't an obvious candidate. Because it was available. It was available. He left to Bernie, and he'd been there before and had a good, uh, you know, re- a reputation with the fans and connection with the fans. And they brought him in. I don't think they expected to give him the job full time, but he did while they gave him the job full time. He had a good season last season and, and deserves credit for that, but it's all gone a bit peak tong at the moment. And I think if you Celtic, I just don't know where you look. They tried in between, didn't they? Lennon the first time and, and Rogers. They tried Ronnie Ronnie Dyler and, and that didn't really work out. So Well Phil Parkinson's not busy. <laughs> yeah, I, I kinda think it might end up being a manager who's out of work, who is a kind of English championship type level manager who's who's not in work and thinks if I do a good job at Celtic, I might find myself in, in contention for a Premier League job. Eddie Howe? Um, well, that was basically the Brendan Rodgers route, to be fair. Yeah, well, exactly. That was the Brendan Rodgers route. Eddie Howe, um, I mean, he, he looked as though he was far too far north when he was at Burnley. Well, that's true, yeah. And, and Celtic is quite a lot further north than that, so... I'd be surprised, but I, yeah, it's it's difficult to see where they go, and that that might help buy Lennon a little bit more time. But he can't keep getting bad results. I mean, he 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 will struggle to see Christmas at this rate. Where, where's Owen? As Coyle? a manager, not as a human. <laughs> yeah, where, where, <laughs> where's Owen Coyle? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you do sort of run out of names quite quickly. But, uh... There was an article the other week saying, talking about uh, how Roy Keane apparently still harbours ambitions to come back as a manager. And, you know, he obviously played for Celtic a bit. You know, Keane versus Gerrard could be uh, an interesting one. Um, but I, I don't think it will happen, by the way. But it uh, would be amusing if it did. I, I think Roy Keane's managerial career is over. Um, if, if Roy Keane becomes manager, can he make Tim Cahill his assistant? <laughs> <laughs> well, if he gets Tim Cahill off my TV, because he, he only seems to be the ever pun- Ugh, he seems to be the only pun that Sky Sports ever wheel out. Yeah, yeah, he's become one of their sort of regulars, hasn't he? That's true. Yeah. Um, anything else that's caught your eye this weekend? We've discussed the FA Cup results. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know we've. I, I, don't want it to sound as though Derby are the only team in the championship that we ever talk about, but uh, there's something slightly odd going on at Derby, isn't there? There's a kind of takeover that's pending but hasn't happened. Steve McLaren's back. Uh, who knows why? Big game. Uh, in some sort of in some sort of overseeing role, and um, and Leroy Rossini, who uh, 
has spent a lot of time. Um, so uh, Liam Rossini, sorry, not Liam Rossini, that was his dad. Liam Rossini, who spent a lot of time doing his coaching badges and trying to work his way up through the ranks of management, was originally joint manager with player manager Wayne Rooney. Then that didn't quite work the week before when Rooney was on the field. They've now appointed Rooney as the kind of senior caretaker of a group <laughs> of four caretakers, which also includes Shay Given. The, the, the existing owners don't want to make a decision about the long-term manager because they're trying to sell. The new people haven't really given any indication anyway as to whether Rooney is their guy or not. But it does appear that they were the people behind McLaren coming back. It just sounds like a complete mess. Um, and, you know, my thought has been it's inevitable that Wayne Rooney gets that job. If that's the decision, I think they just need to hurry up and make it. Because as much as, you know, it's funny for us all to laugh at Wayne Rooney struggling to beat Wickham at home. Um, at some point they need to have a decision about who's in charge. And I think it will help Wayne if he is going to do the job for that decision to come sooner rather than later. I think there's always a risk with somebody staying in that kind of caretaker role too long before you make them permanent. It creates a culture where they're not really the gaffer though, are they in the dressing room? And that's quite difficult to undo once it's embedded. Um, You think about, examples in recent years craig shakespeare at leicester and others in that in that category yeah yeah i i think someone needs to make a decision at derby and i don't think anyone wants to make a decision and at the moment there's a risk of too many cooks spoiling the broth when you've got a four-man management team plus steve mclaren sitting in the sand that doesn't feel to me like it's really conducive to winning yeah well they'll be they'll be wheeling out the official pride park umbrella quite soon (laughs) <laughs> it does Good sound like they've gone to sort of mid mid two thousands Premier League bingo with the uh, <laughs> some of the names. In there. <laughs> yeah, what what next? Joint managers? Where's, where's Roy Evans? Give him a joint yeah, manager. Uh, we haven't we haven't had joint managers in English football for a long time, have we? There was a little trend of them at the end of the nineties. Obviously, Liverpool had Evans and Julia for about six months, didn't they? But Millwall for a while had joint managers. Do you remember that? It's Stevens and I remember. I don't remember who, but Mc, I remember the McKinley or McLeod. I think the other guy was name. Um, but yeah, they 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 were joint managers at Millwall for a, a number of years. And obviously, in the early nineties, there was there was the grit and Kirbishly axis at Charlton before before Kerbs became the kind of one man band there. So it's been a long time since we've gone down that. Wasn't there a Brolin and Lombardi? <laughs> Lombardo. <laughs> that was just a period a, at Crystal Palace. Absolutely crazy experience. <laughs> the Crystal Palace um, World Cup experience with, with Atelio Lom, Lombardo and, um, Thomas, and Brolin. Thomas Brolin. I think they were only his caretaker joint managers, but um, <laughs> needless to say, they didn't give anyone cause to give them the job permanently. <laughs> No, but I have I have just thought of the, the the only manager who can save Derby, who's surprisingly not come up on this podcast before, Steve Wigley. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if he's still working in football, Wigley. I, I, I think Southampton fans might say he never started. <laughs> um, any, anything else, guys? No, nothing from me, Dan. Oh well, it's been um, an, a pleasure as always. Um, Villa looking for an equaliser against West Ham, but not not forthcoming so far. Um, was there anything else that I wanted to say? No, no, it's been a 
a breathtaking weekend of sport. Um, I think most of my breath was taken away on Friday night by the rugby. And if there's any Wigan fans listening, uh, I'd just like to extend zero sympathy in your direction. <laughs> and yeah, thank you very much for listening. I hope that doesn't cost us any subscribers. And <laughs> we will be back next week with um, with more talk about football because the, the Premier League and football in general always gives us plenty to talk about. Well, it's the it's a North London derby next weekend, Dan. So I suspect I'll have lots to rant about after that. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to another um, Mourinho masterclass nil nil. <laughs> I'd take nil nil now. I'd snap your hand off for nil nil. Is it is it a, 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 a lane or is it? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's the lane. You yeah. draw you away. You're happy with the drawing you away derbies. Or, or... I think at the moment we're we're a better team away from home than at home, to be honest. So so we may help. But yeah, who knows? That, that that's it. And, and can can's um, quite, who, who have you got next week, Cam? Uh, we're away at West Ham, I think. Um, or we, we play West Ham anyway. Um, whether we're away or not, I'm not sure. Don't, don't have too good. You don't. You, you seem to lose there quite regularly. Yeah, we don't. We don't. Do, we are away. You have to check. But no, we we don't have a good record against. I never like it when we play West Ham. They seem to have some weird hoodoo over us. It's it's very strange. And yeah, we don't do well away there in particular. Um, but equally, we do seem much better away from home as well. So. Uh, but but West Ham have got a winner in charge. <laughs> well, there is that. We, we 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 let the winner go. That was our problem. The win the winner who doesn't who proves that you don't have to win trophies to be a winner. <laughs> to be a winner. As, the, as the famous Everton painting went, went, went and I've been serious as well. Yeah. <laughs> he did a good job at Everton, but to call someone a winner when yeah. I think we're going down a rabbit hole because if, if, if you invite me to jump down an Evertonian rabbit hole at the moment, I'm I'm taking it. I'm still not over that derby. But then again, I won't be over it in five years because that's just my uh, volatile nature. Right, gents, thank you very much for your time and we'll catch up with you next week.